I'm just going to take the lead on this. Uh, so thank you everybody that's here. Uh, it's good to be in person, even though, as you can see, I, I teach at WVU and I, I'm just being prepared. So uh, it's been fun the last couple of days, but it's good to see everybody out. This was one of the, the, better, the, the best locations we uh, did, recorded at when we did uh, uh, some of the interview, one of the interviews for the podcast, which is, as, as, as Ryan told me, was two years ago. Uh, but it, it doesn't seem like that long ago, even though it was uh, in the before times, let's say. But I'm glad everybody's here. Um, I, I, it was an interesting experience making this podcast. Uh, I was ha I, I'm glad that I had some very helpful people at Wheeling Heritage, particularly these two gentlemen, Jonathan and Dylan. Uh, it, they could not, I, this could not have happened without them making us sound so good and making and editing the things that... Uh, probably where I didn't sound as <laughs> good on the microphone. So uh, it takes a lot of people to put one of these uh, sort of podcasts together. But um, I don't know if maybe we want to start with maybe some questions from the audience, maybe about the podcast. Maybe that's a good way to start, and then we can just open it up uh, from there. Uh, but is, if anybody has any questions about Henry Schmulbach, uh, brewing history in Wheeling, or uh, you know, brewing uh, today as well, uh, we can. We can start off talking a little bit about some of the some of some of what you're interested in. Sure. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the what the brewing process would have been in Henry Schmalbach and Anton Raymond's time versus what the brewing process would be like today? I think this is probably up Ryan's alley. Yeah, I can uh, I can kind of get started with that. Um, Anton Raymond was a lot different than Henry Schmalbach. Um, Anton Raymond actually. Um, learned the trade from his father-in-law, Peter Paul Beck. So the Beck Brewery uh, was located in the area of what is today is known as Rock Point Road, um, which is sort of a, a forgotten area of Wheeling today. Uh, but originally the Manchester Bridge sort of connected East Wheeling to Big Wheeling Creek and then the area of Manchester or uh, which you would find on the map today is known as Rock Point Road. Um, and so Anton Raymond actually traveled to St. Louis and various places and actually learned the, uh, the art or the craft of making beer and then brought that back to Wheeling and actually inherited the brewery from his father-in-law and uh, really grew it to be one of the largest breweries in the state of West Virginia. Of course, Schmulbach would be his rival. Schmulbach is a little different because he was always more of an entrepreneur. Um, Schmulbach saw it as more of a business interest. Now, he was a German, had German heritage, um, but he was actually in the wholesale liquor business and uh, would then get the start uh, by acquiring shares in the Nail City Brewing Company, which was located uh, in South Wheeling, uh, approximately uh, 33rd Street, if I'm not mistaken, uh, where Kennedy's Hardware is located today. So he would take the Nail City Brewing Company uh, and hire people, essentially, to then build that to be also, arguably, <laughs> one of the largest breweries in the state of West Virginia. Uh, both Anton Raymond and Schmulbach would both uh, claim to be the, the largest. But they have very different paths when it comes to the uh, the way that they came into acquiring their breweries. Um, so that's kind of a start to that question. Um, when it comes to the, the craft of making beer or the types of different beers, I'm probably not the expert on that other than just like what I've seen um, uh, in advertisements, but we have someone here that can probably attest a little bit more to that, so. Yeah, so uh, the process of making beer, um, Gosh, it's, it's been the same for centuries. Um, I mean, you really have to go back the 1500s uh, to really start getting some extreme uh, ideas of like how some of the other beers were made. Actually, we're making a beer currently or tried to make a beer. Actually, we just dumped it and uh, we're going to try again. Uh, but it's a, it's called a Fouch, which is one of the oldest styles of beer ever made. Uh, and it was done with heather tips, which is interesting because uh, heather tips are traditionally used in making tea. Um, if you actually, we have some heather tips here, we actually steeped it in water. And uh, if you just add a little bit of honey, it, it it's tea. I mean, it was delicious. Uh, but yeah, so, but brewing with them was, was a whole uh, a lot of fun and, and 
and experimenting, but uh, didn't quite work out the way we wanted to. So we're gonna we're gonna take another approach to it. But uh, as far as making beer, it's been very very simple. I have it tattooed on my arm. Uh, it's the German purity law of 1516, which is uh, water, barley, hops, and beer or yeast. Uh, so it's it's literally been that simple for very long, and and I think that's the connection I think that I hold with with this whole uh, this whole storyline, uh, which I thank Hal and, and Ryan for for involving me with this whole project. Uh, was the fact that um, we're just kind of trying to do the same things that they did, and that, and that's just brew really good beer in Wheeling, not necessarily craft beer in Wheeling. Um, so so it's it's kind of it was kind of cool to me, uh, you know, that that uh, that I got involved with this because because that's what we do is is just use four products. We don't we don't use any chemicals or anything in our beer, so the process is the same. Uh, some of the equipment's changed, obviously, uh, but but the the idea of it, if you go to any brewery, if you look at a home brewer, anybody, um, the process is the same. We've got some home brewers in the crowd tonight, so. Um, they can tell you literally if they walk downstairs, they can brew beer with me. Um, they would just have to learn the equipment, not the process. The process is the same. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so very similar process for years. And I would imagine the, the big difference with, for uh, Raymond Schmolbach is just the scale and the size of production. Um, I don't know, Ryan, if you know off the top of your head, like what would have been sort of yearly production? Yeah, I mean, they both bragged uh, to produce, we're talking hundreds of thousands, you know, 250,000, 300,000 barrels uh, a year. And of course, they're also bottling that too. So um, it gets a little confusing when you try to calculate like how much they were actually brewing. But um, you know, their beer could be found anywhere throughout the tri-state area. So obviously it was uh, sold in West Virginia, but, you know, both breweries were located near, you know, railroad lines or transportation or also Big Wheeling Creek. So one other thing is they were both located near fresh water supplies, and then both uh, were located also near caves where they could brew the beer and then store it to keep it cool. Um, but both breweries could have been found in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and, and also Ohio, so, yeah. Uh, was there any particular ethnic or religious groups that tend to favor either one of uh, the brewing? I think in terms of favoring, yeah, yeah. Well, the way it it worked was they were sort of a supplier for most of the saloons. So there was a, a system that it's similar to today, but it's a little different. It's called sort of the Tide House system, where the brewer would actually subsidize a lot of the early cost of opening a saloon, which for many immigrants in the late 19th, early 20th century is the easiest small business to open largely because they could make an arrangement with a large brewer and they could provide them with not just beer, they all the equipment they need. They'd, they'd, give them, they'd also buy, give them money or loan them, you know, the ability to put you know, the fixtures you'd think of the turn of the century saloon. The, the one limitation that would put on a saloon is if you went into a saloon at that time, you had one company's beer on tap. That was basically it. And whatever brands, uh, brands they had. Now, Schmulbach and Raymond's beer was very popular because they had multiple what we would call brands now, whereas, you know, at that time in other places, it may just be one or two that's on tap, and that's all uh, you can really get. But in terms, of the, in terms of the saloon trade, I'm not sure exactly maybe which one predominated in Wheeling, but uh, obviously most of the saloons were run by German immigrants at this time. Uh, if you were in South Wheeling, some Polish, some Polish immigrants would have run, been running saloons, Greek. Uh, immigrants, obviously, in this in this wider area as well. Uh, at its height in 1904, the city of Wheeling had 199 licensed saloons, and I'm air quoting for if you can't see because there's a number of unlicensed saloons as well. So we're talking several, you know, several several hundred, obviously. You know, the numbers are astronomical. We you were talking about the the, the barrels of beer that were made. I don't, I don't think people really understand the fact that. The, the amount of beer that they were actually making in the city of Wheeling is bigger than any brewery that's currently in the state of West Virginia. So, like, you know, the, our biggest ones, the Greenbriars, I mentioned, I think, in the podcast, the mm -hmm. Greenbriars, the, the Big Timbers, you know, yeah. they, have, they have a silo of grain. That, you know, that everybody's like, oh, my gosh, that's huge. But if you go back in history, 
what they were doing here was massive, mm-hmm. like extremely massive. And then, and then being able to get it to the different states, you know, I mean, it could be, you know, cart, you know, early automobiles, things like that. It's unheard of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, if you're listening to the podcast, go just Google Schmulbach or Raymond Brewing Company, and you'll see the buildings, and you'll see a diagram of the layouts. And I always kind of describe them as like a, a college campus. Like each building had a very specific purpose. So you had, of course, the brew house, uh, but often the brewmaster is living on site. So they're there connected to the brewery. Then you have uh, the Cooper shop that's, that's there for the barrels and the kegs, and you have the bottling house, and the workers live within walking distance. They live within the neighborhood. You have the stables for the horses. So um, I just was always fascinated with how it was just a little community, and, uh, and then a, we'll probably kind of get to this, but prohibition mm-hmm. and what prohibition did to that industry. And... You know, we're just talking about two breweries, but, you know, when Schmulbach and Raymond were at their height, you have uh, the Balzer Brewing Company, the Unita Brewing Company uh, that were also doing fairly well, um, and Prohibition would, would really destroy them. And then if you want to kind of backtrack um, to the 1820s, 30s, 40s, you know, at any given time, Wheeling always had at least five to six different breweries. And they might have been operating in a very small operation, but there's always been breweries in, in Wheeling. Mm-hmm. You know, I often ride, I'm a cyclist as well, so I often ride the trail, and every time I go south, I see the Benwood Brewing Company with the cornerstone, and I, keep, I can't remember the date on it. You remember that, Ryan? I want to say it's 1906. Okay. Something I mean, like and they that. were very small. Yeah, and, very, and, very and, small. And kind of a hidden project, if you will, because they were... Uh, but it was interesting that they were down in that, like even further south Wheeling than the Schmalbach. Right. Uh, you know, Raymond was kind of over here, East Wheeling, uh, kind of the north. Schmalbach was kind of center and south, then was was even further south than that. So. Right. And that cornerstone you're talking about, that building, I believe that was the bottling house is all that stands from that brewery. Um, and I want to say, I can't remember the exact name of the brew, but they had like these different promotional campaigns and, and they would put like a, a piece of gold or a gold coin somehow in the bottle. And that would entice people to go buy their beer to try to find, like in the case of beer, like that little... It's token. the golden ticket. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, that's another brewery where if you look them up, it's, there's not a lot of information about them, but nonetheless, another one that was in, in the area too. Uh, question is probably for Ryan, but uh, you touched upon it briefly about the, the effect on the economy at Prohibition. But I was just wondering, do you ever come across in your research, uh, like the, uh, the grain, the barley, and the hops, was any of that produced locally, or where, where did that come from? You know, most of it was shipped in locally, but I don't know. I've never seen like specific destinations. Have you, Hal, mm-hmm. of where of where specifically they were getting it from? Yeah, I mean, hops doesn't. No, that wouldn't have been growing locally yeah. at, at that time. So they're they're definitely importing. That. Yeah. 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 The hop industry is really just taken off. You know, uh, after the 1950s, 60s. You know, out, out west, really. Uh, to gain, you know, the popularity that they have. Uh, grain, I can imagine. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Obviously, yeah, with the yeah. farming oh, and yeah, everything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's probably what, you know, really intrigued them to come over is the fact that they could have grain, you know, grown here. Right. Uh, you know, and start a brewery. But yeah, as opposed uh, to, if you're opening a brewery in a larger city in America at that time, you are having to, right. you know, ship in grain and other items from a long distance, whereas... You know, this is the this at the time is the urbanized part of West sure. Virginia, so well, you have it, a large area that you can draw on for you know different different type of yeah. And to be right. fair about the hop portion of it, I mean, you know, Henry's Henry's two big uh, beers, the lager. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have much less hops or whatever. Plus, they you know they used a lot of other resources to bitter the beer, if you will, uh, as opposed to hops like they had to do for uh, pale ales and stuff in mm-hmm. England. So. Uh, there probably wasn't really much use. Uh, it'd be interesting to research that and find out, like, much use as far as hops in beer. They probably kept yeah. them pretty simple yeah. in small quantities. Yeah, it would have been, been very cost prohibitive for them to probably have imported a large amount. Correct. And it's Correct. not going to last very long. I yeah, because in today's market, that's the most expensive piece, that and the yeast. I mean, the barley's, you know, obviously yeah. relatively inexpensive. Interesting. Uh, but, yeah. I would imagine that that's, I mean, 
if they if they were, they were using very very little, and hence why the beers that they they brewed, like the lagers and the and the lighter ales, uh, and and what's really formed the the beer markets today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you look at like the beers that we make currently, like the lighter ones are the ones that have the less hops. They're easier to make. They're cheaper to make. You can make them in mass quantities, mm-hmm. uh, and and a lot of those those hops are you're using no, what they call noble hops or hops that were used in Europe mm-hmm. uh, before here, and um, they're they're less expensive. Uh, you're using way less. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, they, they might have used other items uh, out there, uh, you know, historic items uh, to bitter the beer. Interesting. That could also be where like sort of a seasonal, you know, seasonal aspect comes in. Maybe if they're a schmo- brewery like Schmobach is large enough that could probably buy a large amount in the quantity, and then that means for that season maybe you're going to market yeah, more sure. happier types of beer. Well, and because he dabbled in trade and, sure. and, and commerce and everything that, like, surely he had connections sure. that, 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 you know, we just don't know about. <laughs> and it seems like Bach beer is the one that it was the most seasonal type, like an October type mm-hmm. fest or something like that, which I've seen that with other Wheeling breweries too, but I never really thought of it from that aspect of they know that that season's coming up, they get that supply, and, and that's what kind of made it special, I think, for people to go out and buy a case of that beer or visit their local saloon for it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, at that time in Wheeling, uh, drinking beer is probably much more healthier than drinking water that's on tap. So uh, Schmulbach often marketed his beer as the beer of the home with, with the sort of the family at the dinner table, beer bottle out. Uh, and with the history of sort of, you know, disease and epidemic at the time in Wheeling, you know, that it is a reality that that was a good selling point because you know it was the healthiest drink you could probably get for sure. Yeah, one of his ads was I think it was three beers a day. So you have a beer in the morning, you actually go home for lunch, you have a beer, and then at dinner you have another beer. Um, I'm okay with that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's like the, you know, it's like a meal plan for for that era. So. Yeah. You know what's ironic from from a perspective uh, of today's. Uh, a lot of breweries, uh, brewers, uh, people that we get a lot of travelers here because we're on the I-70 corridor. Uh, we had a ton of them today even uh, that stopped into the brewery to try our beer. Uh, a lot of people ask about like what we're doing as far as water profile. Mm. And they're shocked to hear that all I'm doing is uh, is a slight filter of it. Our water here is really, really good, uh, especially if you get out into like the Elm Grove area. I mean, I know we have this old water line that we're replacing currently downtown, but uh, if you get out into Elm Grove and you drink the water right out of the tap, it's better than downtown. And and the water here is really good. Now it doesn't like it doesn't like if you want to make a, a, a specific beer like a Czech Pilsner, and you, then you have to and you want to get exact. Okay, fine. You got to do some adjustments. But if you just want to make a good Pilsner. No problem. So yeah, the water here is very, very good for making beer. Interesting. I have a question kind of what you were talking about before. There were so many breweries at this time, and they obviously were all trying to get a leg up on each other. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other kind of creative or funny marketing campaigns that they employed? I think I can kind of get started with that. So Anton Raymond would acquire what is you guys know as Wheeling Park. That was originally his beer garden. Um, and so that was the perfect place mm-hmm. to market German heritage and his beer. Um, and so it was a beer garden sort of slash like amusement park. Um, Schmulbach, I think, kind of realizing what Raymond was doing would then um, acquire property in what is today the neighborhood of Mozart but uh, he would buy what was uh, originally called the Fraser Farm. It was just the big farm with a lot of orchards. He would acquire that and turn that into Mozart Park. And the unique thing about that was to get up there, uh, it's a very, of course, steep hill, he had an incline. Um, I think uh, what it would be today around 43rd Street. So there was an incline that would take you up to the park and you go up the incline, you know, just kind of the amusement of that was pretty cool. And they had, of course, a beer garden, picnics, they did outdoor plays, a dancing pavilion. So, um, like, I, I teach the history of Wheeling at Wheeling Park High School and I tell kids, like, on any given weekend, you could have a couple thousand people at Wheeling Park and a couple more thousand people maybe at Mozart Park, just escaping the city and going up there. 
and in taking part in the activities and of course also drinking the beer. So, um, and Schmulbach did that, I think of course, because he wanted to market his beer, but he kind of also said, hey, I want the people of South Wheeling to have a place to go to. And so I think that's kind of like one of the most unique things that they've done. And I haven't researched a ton of other cities and breweries, but I've never come across anything quite like that, like with the parks or, you know, and not only is it a park, but it's also something sort of civic minded for the people too. Um, So I think that's kind of like a place to start with that question is, is those parks and I don't know, how have you come across anything else with Mozart or Wheeling Park in regards to marketing or possibly? Yeah, in terms of like, if we recall them sort of like amusement parks for the time, Wheeling Park, while it was a public park, it, it was east of town. It's kind of catered to like a sort of middle class, you know, upper middle class, upper class sort of background. Um, whereas Schmulbach, you know, Mozart Park at its height, got a lot, I would say a lot of, almost the same amount of foot traffic for a much smaller area. Right. It, it was more of a working class amusement park. It also, I think back to the immigrant question as well, a lot of the German singing societies tended to have their activities at Mozart Park. So, you know, that's tying him in again with some of those uh, very German sort of centric uh, groups that would have been sort of... Uh, hosting events up at Mozart Park, whereas Wheeling Park is more—it was more a wide open. I mean, for Raymond, he Raymond he doesn't care as a businessman. That means hey, there could be five thousand people here. Whereas at Mozart, you know, you have the novelty of the the incline because you have to ride the incline. Uh, and on the podcast episode, uh, Alex, Alex Weld does a great reading of the sort of description of when the incline opened. It is like painted in this like majestic. This is the height of technology in the late eighteen nineties. It's it's a little grandiose, but you know, you know, a little elaborate. Interesting along that lines. I feel like I'm the future guy. Like yeah. you guys are the historians, and I'm the future guy, right? So, um, to answer your question, as far as the marketing stuff, um, yeah, they had these like like grand amusement parks and everything. But if you think back at that time, you see all the pictures, even right before Prohibition, like you see people like packed into these places, and it wasn't a place really of hey, let's get drunk, like a bar, right? So I think that that's what the future now, right, is is doing with craft beer. Craft beer is now the gathering places, like we have games. We have people come playing games here. Um, you're starting to see like sort of that grander scale of a more family-friendly type place where people can go get beer, uh, some places serve food, some you know have food trucks, so on and so forth. Uh, but in today's society, at least in America, like the biggest thing that I think recently has been like that would be brew dogs over in Columbus. Mm-hmm. I mean, the hotel, the dog friendly, the, you know, they've got this whole big mecca of that type of thing that's happening again. Um, I don't know of any other brewery, uh, some of the other bigger crappery stone uh, dogfish, any of those that are doing something of that nature. Um, so that would be the biggest one in the future now that, that is doing something amusement park-like, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So. And I, I think Schmulbach and Raymond, I mean, they're kind of, they're philanthropists. I mean, you know, you can go around Wheeling today and see so many different things uh, that they were involved in building or their name is still out there on different things. I think that's kind of what they saw this as too. I mean, sure, it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a business thing. Um, but I really, truly believe they were doing something good mm-hmm. for, for the people of Wheeling. So, Yeah. And compared to other, let's say, captains of industry at the time, these are men that are revered because they're producing a product that people love and want. And, ha- and they tend to have better relations with their employees. I mean, the brewing industry is very heavily unionized at this time. Schmulbach's probably one of the most right. pro-union sort of business owners on a large scale. That's different than the steel industry, which is the main <laughs> industry in town, which is... Very anti-union at this time, you know, large strikes. You don't see that. It's more of a family, sort of a wider community uh, sort of support of the, the, you know, the brewer himself. What I think is pretty cool is that one of the incline cars, it's still being used today up there in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, when they closed it, eventually streetcars became powerful enough to go up uh, the hill, I think it would be Fraser Lane. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that was dismantled and then reused. So um, the, the crazy thing about the incline, if you know, you're listening and you were like, what did this look like? There's not a lot of images of it. 
which surprises me. But you can find a handful of images, and there's actually a very early uh, oil painting that was done of it too that I think you can find on Weelong. But um, that's one thing I always find strange is like this was an incline, but yet very rarely photographed. But if you do your research, uh, the newspaper rants and raves about it from the construction of it to uh, the different features that you could take the incline for uh, at the park. So. Sure. I think of those are in the incline bar. I think they have Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there you go. And of course, that's where it got. And a lot of people don't realize that. You know, of how did this bar get its name? But there's the story of it right there. Yeah. Talk a lot about. Um, Well, I was telling Kevin before before we started talking that my favorite episodes of the podcast are probably the ones that are the most uh, questionable in terms of ethics and morals. So, um, you know, one of the big criticisms, whereas I think this is one of the big differences between the two of them. Raymond, from what I understand, is a very family man, very sort of proper, you know. He, he was quiet. <laughs> yeah, compared to Schmulbach. Yeah. Schmulbach, uh, there's one, one, the one episode on Vice and Wheeling starts off with a description of a massive raid that happens, I think it's 1894, and one of the indictments is for Schmulbach, but it wasn't reported in the press because at that time they didn't print the men's names in the newspaper. They'd print the women's names in the newspaper. And also print the addresses, oddly enough, as if, like, that's going to discourage people. It never seemed to work. But the, 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 the allegation against Schmulbach was partly because he was involved in these kind of like working class amusements, but also saloons, saloons that also at the time tended to mix different types of businesses. So saloons on the bottom floor and what were known as fake hotels on the upper floors. Uh, there was a lot of allegations that he benefited from that. It's a little unclear how much, but that tide house system plays into it. Schmulbach was on the, the, the city's uh, board of education for several terms. Uh, he had a lot of influence on the city council. Uh, you know, people that lived in the South Wheeling area and other area that, you know, were very supportive of him. The, the main political allegation was that he had a lot of ties to the big utilities. So the streetcar system, the sort of gas, the electric. There's this cartoon from 1906 that I use in the, we did it, we talked about in the first interview we did, where Schmulbach's sitting on top of his building with a streetcar under one arm, a telephone, blowing the suds off of a beer bottle, you know, kind of, this suggests that he's like monopolizing wheeling to a certain extent. There's a number of scandals that come out in the early 20th century of, you know, him trying to influence city council, but they're all kind of just sort of vague, under the table things. Um, the episode where I talked to Mayor Glenn Elliott, you know, one of the big things that surprised the mayor was at that time city council had two different branches and had, I believe, 40 plus members on city council. So there was a lot of potential for graft and for collusion and for all kinds of nefarious things that happened. And one of the big reforms they made around the time of prohibition was to reduce it kind of to the size that it is, you know, based on wards having one representative. Uh, but Schmulbach was always alleged that he was nefarious. I mean, the one we had to do an entire episode about whether did he did he murder someone or not. Well, that's that's what I was going to kind of come in with is that <laughs> I mean he was 27 years old and he's drinking at Frank Walter's Tavern, which was where Vance Church is today. Uh, long story short, you can go back and listen to the episode. But yep. uh, you know he's drinking at this tavern. Uh, a guy for fun thought, hey, I'm just going to mess with Schmulbach. He actually takes his horse horses and his buggy and he races him up and down the national road. Schmulbach goes outside to leave. His horses are gone. What happened to them? And uh, people are like, well, this guy's racing your horses up and down the national road. So Schmulbach borrows a buggy, tracks this guy down uh, where Stam's Lane is today. There was, of course, Stam's Tavern. Meets up with this guy, uh, gets into a fist fight with him, altercation. And uh, Schmulbach gets his horses, goes back to Wheeling. And this would have been pretty late at night. I mean, we're talking mm -hmm. midnight or so. Um, and as a result of that fistfight, the, the man dies. Mm -hmm. And Schmulbach is arrested uh, very shortly after for murder. So at a very young age, he's still in the wholesale liquor business at that time. But he goes on trial for murder. He would be acquitted. It was ruled self-defense. But I, you know, this sort of adds to his reputation very sure. early. Um, that he could have been facing some very serious charges, but people, I, 
I think the public kind of rallied around sure. him too, yeah. um, just because of who he was, and he was very well liked. And hey, the guy stole his horses; he shouldn't have done that. So yeah. um, that I think kind of starts this whole reputation. And Schmulbach just never looks back, though. He keeps going as an entrepreneur. And I think like, when you look at other entrepreneurs in Wheeling and other entrepreneurs, I think just in U.S. history, mm-hmm. he's very different uh, with his lifestyle. Uh, from that to uh, he was a bachelor almost all of his life, was said to have uh, visited the houses of, of ill repute. Ill repute. Uh, we can't really prove that. But he, I mean, this guy hung right. out late at night. He drank, he smoked, he gambled. But he took care of the people of sure. South Wheeling. He donated to the churches. Um, Ray, Raymond was a family man. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories is him and some guys were out partying and wheeling. They were drinking. They got a hotel and their gold watches were stolen that night, and they end up filing a police report over this. But if you read it, you know, you're like, he was out till early in the morning. You know, they, they crash in a hotel room and when they don't go home, Mm-mm. you know, and then they get upset because it was belief. I think the bellboy or someone stole their gold watches. And it, <laughs> I forget the values and everything, but it's yeah. just one of those stories where, like, here's a guy that was a, yeah. you know, very successful, and he's just out having a good time. So... Um, there's lots of stories like that, but I think sure. those are a couple things that, that kind of get it going. Yeah, and, and, and Raymond and Schmulbach were very heavily involved in politics in Wheeling and in the state, in, in both political parties. So, you know, they helped finance candidates. You know, most local elections and canvassing took place in saloons. So, you know, whose saloon it is that can play in polling places. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that obviously can sort of play, play. Drink a beer, cast your vote. Sure, sure. And, and saloons were, you know, very common social spaces because during the factory day, when you did get a, if you did get a short lunch break, or men would go, mainly men, but also women would go in the saloon. They'd obviously have to buy a beer, which at the time the going price is maybe five, ten cents. And at the end of the counter, when you would walk in, literally, if this was the table, you would walk in, they would have sandwich food, pretzels, bread. It's all laid out there for you to make a sandwich. This is where the notion of the free lunch as a sort of idea, that men could get a free lunch going to a saloon. I'm going to bring that back. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant because it's all this, like, salty lunch meat, pretzels, and it's like after eating a big sandwich, like, they're like, I'm going to get me another beer. And if you're right across from a factory, you got several hundred guys at lunchtime on shifts coming in. Right. You know, give them something free, but then at the same time, make, make, maybe get them to drink two or three extra. This is not a good idea that then they're going back to work and working in the factory after drinking maybe three beers real quickly. But. That, didn't, that didn't end until like the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I can't recall really seeing too much about that. I know the Schmulbach employees were allowed to take beer home. Um, Another thing that kind of caused controversy was whether or not they were allowed to take ice home uh, at certain certain times. But no, I've never really seen too much about they must have been able to to handle it. Yeah, I guess it's part of the business, too. I mean, they're trying the beer. They're, oh, that didn't work. Let's get, let me try something else, you know, and two hours later, they've they've slept through the shift, maybe. uh, If you see stories of the only ones I've ever seen in the newspaper from the time is with the the drivers of the wagons. Like, if somebody got drunk and then on the delivery wagon and, you know, wrecks the wagon or something, you'd hear about that, obviously. No no drinking before delivery. Well, yeah, yeah. Or while delivering in some cases, too. But if you look up old photos from breweries, and there are a few examples from Schimmelbach and Raymond, you know, they'll, they'll be the photo of the employees of the breweries, and they're standing around the kegs. They're, you know, they have some brooms, and they have that quart bottle of beer in their hand holding it proudly. So, you know, it really was something that they took serious. And, uh, again, it was part of their culture, part of their heritage. Right, yeah. right. Um, any other questions? These have been a good discussion yeah, so far. Yeah, this is good. Make, there, what was the most surprising thing that you learned while you were researching the podcast? Oh, jeez. Most interesting thing. Hmm. Something you didn't expect or didn't already know? Um, 
I mean, I, I knew a lot of this, and a lot of this came from my own research over the years, and I would just put it in piles, like, I can't really use this for anything, but it's really interesting. At some point, and whenever I talked to Jake Doherty and uh, Alex Weld about this, they were like, well, what do you think about doing it with Schmolbach and looking at, like, this period of Victorian wheeling around, around the brewing, the saloon trade? I said, oh, I've got lots of stories, lots of things that I've wanted to use. Uh, that I couldn't use. Uh, you know, again, I, I think some of the Vice stuff to me is just interesting because th they wrote this down, like they put it in print that somebody, a historian, could later find. And a hundred years later, I'm having I'm having a couple people in Wheeling Heritage read a deposition of a madam in in Center Wheeling. I mean, probably the one of the funniest parts of the whole experience was having having Chris Villa Magna and uh, uh, who else? Who else was? And having Travis Henline read this deposition. Uh, it was the only one, it was actually one of the few elements of the whole process where we had to actually do multiple takes because Chris started, and she's going to kill me for talking about this. Chris, for some reason, took the, I, I tasked her to read the part of this, this, this lady of the, of the night, so to speak, who's being asked to testify about police corruption. And Chris is reading it, and she, for some reason, she's had, she has this southern accent, which I don't stop her. I just let her keep going. But we had to do several takes, and, not, and, and she, we, we thought we had the best one. I had to stop her. I said, Chris, you gotta, we got to redo this last part because you lost the whole southern accent. It's just going to lose the, the flair in, in the podcast. But I think some of that material and how, how people in Wheeling that didn't really like people like Henry Schmolbach would tie in the drinking culture, brewing, the vice trade, all of this is connected. This is all being created by, uh, and in many respects, blaming Schmolbach primarily. Uh, the term that the Wheeling intelligentsia would often refer to it as is Schmolbachism. Wheeling is being ruined by Schmolbachism. Beer, prostitution, sort of gambling and organized vice. So um, when they crack down on, uh, on, uh, on the production of beer, it's also going to crack down on all these other, these other sort of practices. So I think some of, to your question, I think some of the more interesting things were sort of attempts to ban dancing at Wheeling Park. I had a couple friends in one episode, they're reading like these newspaper articles about attempts to stop certain types of dances in the 19-teens, which just sounds hilarious. The grizzly bear, which I can't even imagine what that I is. I thought the banana one was more the funny. The banana <laughs> slide, which just, what is that? Banana that just, slide. That sounds, that sounds kind of risque even for today. <laughs> um, but the fact that that's happening at the same time that they're starting to raise taxes on on, on kids. They're starting to say, okay, Schmulbach and Raymond, we're, we're going to get you where this hits you the most. We're going to tax and increase the licenses on saloons. We're going to pass Sunday closing laws so you can't be open on Sunday. We're going to try to ban the fake hotels and then eventually just say, we're just going to ban the sale and production of alcohol. Because if we do that, then it'll take care of all these other problems. Eh, not, not, not really, <laughs> but wasn't that successful. I think for me, like, this started back in 2008 when I first heard about Schmulbach, and I was taking the history of wheeling at West Liberty uh, University with Dr. Javersack, and he told us the story of Schmulbach at Greenwood Cemetery and uh, how he had murdered uh, Hamilton Forsyth was his name, but it's like, I got to know more about this guy, and I'm kind of in, like, how situation of, like, who's ever going to want to hear about this other than me? Like, I think it's interesting. But I started doing all this research, and then that led to a presentation, mm -hmm. and more people wanting to hear about it, right. and then I started collecting, like, pre- Now you're an expert. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> like, you know, now we're, you know, years later, like, we're doing a podcast about it that people right. are listening to. So I think, like, there's so many different avenues you can go through mm -hmm. with just one person, like Schmulbach, and, of course, that leads to Raymond and all these other breweries, so... Um, I know, like, one of the things that I thought was interesting is we went to Roney's Point, um, and Schmulbach would have, he lived just down the street from where we're at, at uh, 2311 Chaplin Street, but he lived there most of his life, the house still stands, but then he would move to Roney's Point late in life, and he actually married very late in life, too, um, to a woman that was much younger than him, and he built this really majestic mansion at Roney's Point. And he would move in in 1913, and he would die two years later. And today, that's in ruins. Um, it was used as the county farm after his death. There was also a mental hospital built just out the road from there. But uh, Hal, I don't think you'd ever been there before. No. And so I, we, we met up, and 
Well, I think we did some of the recording, right? Yes. Up to Roni's point. Well, first, but, he yeah. had to drive me because I would never <laughs> have found out where this was. Uh, and it's also... Dylan and Jonathan can comment on how good the recording quality was, but that was one of my few attempts of actually trying to record myself. It, it was, it was, uh, it was okay. It wasn't, it wasn't as high quality as some of the other things, but yeah, I, I think just kind of sharing that experience yeah. with someone who's done a lot of research on Wheeling history and Schmulbach, and, and to go there and actually see the this, you know, we know what the what the mansion looked like at one point, and then to see it today in total ruins and. Is that out there as you're going towards the alley? Right, if you go, yeah, so instead of going up Dallas Pike Road, if you take a left, I think it's called Point Run Road, so you know the old Stonehouse Tavern? Yes. So if you take a left there and go straight, you'll run into County Farm Road, and then that would take you up to where Schmulbach uh, built his estate, but I actually, you know, from where I live currently, I can actually see that property, so like, it was just kind of crazy to think like, gee, I grew up near this, mm -hmm. didn't know anything about it, and here I am doing all this research, and it leads back to, you know, yeah. to that. So that's a whole other story of Schmulbach right there. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that was just kind of cool to, to show him and share that experience and do that recording. I know it was in the summer, and you can hear the, the crickets in the background, and you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, li of, you literally, yeah. I feel like we're going to walk into the middle of the woods somewhere. Yeah. And just some of the stories with that site layer, I mean, it, 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 it would make a great podcast in itself of what just happened. Oh, I site. agree. And I'm, I'm actually almost jealous that I didn't get to go on that, uh, on that bit of a tour because there is so much history yeah. beyond just the Schmalbach piece of just the mental hospital and things like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was like, a, I describe it as like an Ogilvy, you know, with the way that it was when Schmalbach was living there. Mm -hmm. And uh, his wife had wanted nothing to do with the property after he had died, because that was in 1915, the middle of nowhere. So um, she would move back to Wheeling, and you know, like I said, the county would acquire the property. Um, and uh, you know, when Schmulbach had, it's probably about 600 or so. Um, oh, it's massive. Yeah. yeah. Right now, the county probably has 800-ish. Yeah. There's some homes that are built out past there. Um, if you guys like. I mean, I remember this when I was growing up, but they talked about building, uh, they talked about in the 90s developing that property before the Highlands was ever a thing. And that was in the paper periodically um, of doing something with that land. But um, yeah, currently it's all, all county property. So sort of going back to your question, uh, if, I, if, if you guys don't mind. Yeah, again, again, I feel like the future guy, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, for me, this whole experience, uh, having historians like really bring in um, the idea of brewing uh, and how it originated, sort of in Wheeling. Uh, really, if you, if I, when I listen, I listened to the whole podcast again today, the entire thing, all six episodes. Um, just because I was like, oh, you know what? I haven't listened to it in a while, but uh, I've listened to it probably three or four times uh, because I was involved and, and, and it, it is one of the best I've ever heard. Um, the cool part for me was tying in where we are today. There are so many things that when my wife and I decided to do this and buy this building and, and open a brewery, when we decided to do this, everything about it kind of like you can you can see tie-ins like simple blue collar uh we have napkins that are literally posted in our brewery um of the original business plan or i say business plan i mean we we're writing on cocktail napkins in an airport right and it was literally how simple can we make this how good can we make beer slowly simply blue collar like and just there's there's so many things. I mean, obviously not the murder, not <laughs> not not the uh, not not all the other uh, you know things that he was involved in, right? Uh, but there are so many things that I've learned through this podcast, uh, thanks to Hal and and Ryan, um, that I, I look back when we started this, and I'm like, oh, like it's the same. It, it's identical. It's just hundreds of years later. That's all. Like really dove into prohibition. Can you talk about how prohibition um, affected brewing really at the time? Yeah. How that's had a ripple effect through time, and how maybe today how this current 
Yeah. I mean, I, you want me to hit the history first. I mean, uh, of course, as we note in the podcast, West Virginia did this experiment of trying to go dry six years before the whole country did. Suffered all the same problems that the country suffered in the 20s with trying to stop people from making and selling alcohol. In Wheeling, I, 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 and this is my you know, historian's opinion, that's really what began to send Wheeling on this sort of like stagnation economically because you had a city that had a lot of different industries. You know, brewing supports glass making, it supports keg making, it supports you know, the nail industry, everything else. After Prohibition, Wheeling kind of just settles around the steel industry, and that's going to be the main thing it's known for. But that's not what the city had ever been, even in the frontier, the antebellum period. It was a multi-purpose, you know, industries built on many other things. Even people like Schmulbach and Raymond were invested in a variety of different types of things, whereas... Those of you that you might grew up wheeling in the mid-20th century, it's, it's, a, it's thought of as a steel area and tied itself to a single industry. Well, obviously, that is not self-sustainable. Prohibition, I mean, immediately lays off hundreds of people uh, citywide, hundreds more if you include the slowdown in the glass industry. Uh, the city and the state suffered dramatically because uh, beer and alcohol taxes were some of the biggest ways that the city government was funded and that the state government was funded. Uh, yeah, and so the idea that you're going to pass a law that's very strict, I mean, it's the Yost Law, which is the law that was passed uh, in 1912, goes into effect in 1914. Uh, third offense under the Yost Law was life in the state penitentiary, if you got caught. I mean, it, this is like a bone-dry law, uh, and it's modeled in other states. Um, oddly enough, that when federal prohibition comes around, many people, when they're arrested, they, they often prefer to get arrested under the federal, uh, the Volstead Act, because it's more of like a cash fine, a slap on the wrist, whereas if you get arrested and charged under the Yost Law, it depends how many times you've been charged. Uh, you know, obviously where I'm from in Moundsville, the highest peak of enrollment in the Moundsville pen happens in the teens and 20s, because people are in there because of alcohol violations. Uh, so it's creating a need for a wider police presence, and there's I, as I say in the podcast, surveillance presence, the sneaking around that you think of in the 20s of sort of trying to catch somebody illegally <laughs> producing alcohol, that's happening, you know, 1914, 1915. And as we document some of it in the podcast, I think the other interesting thing is that's where, if, if Henry Schmulbach is this personality for this earlier period of a sort of uh, wide open wheeling, I think let's call it. Uh, you know, he's quickly replaced around the same moment by another person, not, not an immigrant, that's a misconception, but a Bill Elias. So if one's associated with brewing, the next one is associated initially with uh, the illegal sale and production of alcohol. So they're both kind of coming out of the same world, just kind of right, transitioning around that point. Uh, Schmulbach, he had threatened numerous times to move his brewery to Steubenville. Mm -hmm. and actually acquired property there, but never broke ground on a brewery. And uh, like one of the questions that I always get is, well, why, why did they just stop, you know, when prohibition has finally passed? And Schmulbach was, you know, getting up there in years, and he was the, at the time the president of the German bank. And I think that's really what he valued most late in life. And they just kind of let it go. I don't know if they thought prohibition would just kind of go away. I, I really don't know. But, um, you know, and the same goes for Raymond. You know, he was getting up there in years too. And so when prohibition comes to West Virginia, they let it go. Um, his son would actually transition to the meatpacking business for a short time period. But, you know, I feel like they, especially Raymond, that family was very well off. They were very well established, very wealthy. They just got interested in other things. Yeah. So if you look at other breweries, um, you know, during Prohibition, you know, they might have, you know, made ice cream or transitioned their buildings to something else. And Wheeling, those families just just let it go. Yep. And, uh, you know, the Schmulbach property would be used for different things, you know, up until the Kennedy Hardware uh, Company goes in there, um, where the stables are at today. Grub Construction was in the brew house for a long time. Um, and the Schmulbach Brewing grounds today is probably like one of the most intact 
pre-prohibition breweries, you're going to find, yeah. at least in, I know in our tri-state area, oh, yeah, absolutely. buildings. Absolutely. There's some buildings from the Raymond Brewing Company that are still there, but mainly the brew house. So, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, they never relocated to another state. Family had no interest in really, you know, keeping the legacy going after prohibition is repealed. And they're, you know, and I, I agree with how that kind of starts, I think, that decline mm -hmm. uh, right there. About how many, between both of the brewers, is like, about how many employees were out of work with Prohibition? You guys have numbers on that? Because you were saying it was like the Hoopers and the... Uh, yeah. I mean, brewery industry-wide, I remember seeing this at one point in 1915. Yeah, oh yeah. Right. I, I think directly breweries, I think it's fair to say maybe eight, 900 people initially. The glass industry goes into a slowdown, particularly glass bottle making, because there's no going to be no need for... And that's what, in, in terms of glass production and wheeling, that's what a lot of it was at that time. Uh, as opposed to like phosphory glass where my dad worked, it was mainly table glass, so they weren't really affected by prohibition. Was the population about 126,000? In wheeling at the time, oh, it's probably only about 60, 60, 000. yeah, yeah, yeah. The surrounding area, you know, obviously a lot, a lot, a lot bigger. Uh, but, you know, within a year of prohibition going into effect, I mean, the city is in an economic decline at the start of World War I abroad. Uh, in the fall of 1918, there's actually this big law enforcement conference that's held in the Market Auditorium where the uh, you know, Stone Thomas building right. is, that area up there. They have a couple thousand people there. And in protest, the former beer workers, glass workers, German immigrants, it's actually led by the German-American Alliance in 1915. Okay, <laughs> that's a little sketchy in the broader press. But they have like 10,000, 12,000 people in this parade, you know, this wet parade they have. Yeah. And there's thousands of people cheering them on. Like, look at what this did. This did not make life better here in Wheeling, you know. And the population, Glenn actually says this in the episode where we talk about politics. He said if it wasn't for the annexation that happens uh, of like Warwood, Elm Grove, and Tridelphia, Wheeling would have declined in the decade after Prohibition. It doesn't just because they magically expanded the, the definition of what wheeling was all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. So it has a direct immediate, immediate effect for sure. In terms of the more uh, sort of, uh, if, I think what was, the, what was the last part of that question? Sort of how it's sort of... A, the legislation today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> there is... Uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, it may seem like it's slow, but there's a lot going on as far as legislation. Obviously, uh, craft brewing in general across the United States, right, um, has expanded from the bigger markets into the smaller markets, um, which has forced other states to then change. I mean, we still have some dry counties, even like in Arkansas right, and places yeah. like that. Um, you know, they're even having to reconsider that kind of thing. Um, as far as here in Wheeling or in West Virginia in general, I mean, we're, we're, I always say this, we're always like five to seven years behind everywhere else in the world, right? Or not the world, but nonetheless. Uh, you know, we have anywhere, and uh, because of the pandemic here recently, let's call it 2025 20, to let's call it 27, 28 breweries in flux. Uh, you go to any major city, um, and they've got that in one city. Um, so is it hard in West Virginia? Um, yeah, if you, I mean, but it's not difficult in the fact that, like, if you know what you're getting yourself into, uh, I think that's where a lot of people struggle as far as, like, that whole legislation piece goes into it. Uh, you know, the, the federal, the, you know, making beer, you're, you're producing a, a product that is, is uh, controlled, so you have federal excise tax. That affects everybody. That's not just Wheeling or, or West Virginia. Um, the city's not really doing anything abnormal to breweries coming into the city or in this, the state of West Virginia. Um, I don't think licensing is really, like, absurd. Um, There's I, been recent changes. Like, in, like, 10 years ago, there weren't that many craft breweries in no, the state. No, no. And they've changed some of those aspects of what I would call sort of like a prohibition-era approach to dealing with the brewing industry and alcohol that for many decades benefited sort of the largest producers in the country who could pay these high 
Correct. license fees because you had to pay for it, from what I understand, making the beer, distributing the beer, you know, selling the beer, and, and, and they've kind of in the last few years tried to make that process a little, a little easier. I agree with that. Um, there are definitely laws in effect that, that, that hinder the bigger breweries from coming in sure. and taking over uh, the 12,000 uh, barrel. <laughs> this is really funny. The 12,000 barrel a year rule right. uh, as far as licensing and how that affects, mm -hmm. uh, which nobody in the state of West Virginia, and we say that, I said it earlier <laughs> about the 12, like, right? That, right. again, I don't think people realize Schmalbach and Raymond were just massive, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know. Uh, but it, it actually helps us in that in that aspect. The the, the problem is is again the, the decline that happened long ago that we have j literally have never really recovered from, and we're starting to come out and climb out of that. And it's just because we're so far behind of the bigger cities and things like that. Uh, but we're getting there, and that's right. that's what's awesome is being on the forefront of that. Um, and that's why uh, Brewkeepers is here. Uh, honestly, uh, we want to be part of that. So I think legislation is coming. Um, the West Virginia Brewers Guild is doing a great job of, of making sure that a legislation presence is is uh, during the sessions uh, in Charleston. Um, and uh, there's been several several laws that have passed that have helped us. Uh, literally in the past three years. So if that keeps happening, um, I think, uh, you know, I, do I ever see, you know, 50 or 100 craft breweries in the state of West Virginia? No. I mean, craft uh, West Virginia is also like sort of, I hate to call it a wilderness, but like outdoorsy and like, we're, you know, we have a new, the newest national park and like we're trying to preserve that. Right, we're not a city. We're not like uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. We're not Columbus, Ohio. We're not Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Like we are, you know, West or Wheeling will never be because it's only 12 miles across. But like West Virginia in general wants to keep that Appalachian. We're the only state that's completely in the Appalachian region. So you're never going to see a massive amount of breweries. But that also is what makes us special. And that's what we want to try to do. So um, I, I think we're doing a great job uh, as far as legislation-wise. I mean, you know, you can complain all you want about taxes, but it is what it is. I mean, if you go back to the, that day of, of, of how the taxes were, were being done, but those guys, you know, Schmalbach and Raymond were involved with so many organizations that that money was basically circular. It was coming back to them. It's not coming back to us now, but... Uh, it's not awful. It really isn't. So um, I, I think we're making great headway these days. I think there's some great organizations that are involved. Um, and I, I think West Virginia is going to be uh, just fine uh, when it comes to uh, legislation and, and brewing uh, in that industry. Thinking of the use law, do you think the brewers of the day thought, this will never pass, there's no way. And then, and then it passed and they had two years. For oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were attempts starting in the 1880s on the statewide level to get prohibition passed. It failed dramatically in the late 1880s, failed in the turn of the 20th century. And I think they just assumed there's just no way this is ever going to get traction. But if the marketing that Schmulbach and Raymond were doing was very persuasive, I think the marketing on the other side was just as persuasive. I mean, there were stories that the, 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 the prohibitionists would do where they would go into public school classrooms and tell children, if you drink one drink of alcohol, your heart will explode. And, you know, these sort of very, you know, very scary sort of stories about what would happen and how families were being divided by, you know, drunken husbands going home, which, you know, did happen. It's not to say it's not true. Um, the, the other thing that often, I think, got a lot of public opinion was the fact that the growler pail, which is very popular now, I'm always amazed by that because in the turn, the turn of the 20th century, the prohibitionists attacked the growler pail because that was something men would make their children go to the nearby saloon often to fill up, carry back home, and that, could, that was sort of an image the prohibitionists would say, this is, not, this is not right to have these young children being despoiled in this way. But, you know, so it, it goes in cycles, you know. History doesn't repeat itself, but maybe it rhymes at least. Yeah, yeah. Hey guys, to wrap up the hour, will you finish by telling us what your favorite beer is and why? Wait, wait, wait. favorite beer here or favorite? <laughs> I guess for you, favorite beer here. We'll leave it open for Ryan. Uh, wow. Oh, <laughs> that that is a loaded that is a loaded question. Uh, 
yeah, so like, yeah, I, uh, I'm drinking the Highlander coffee stout today. Uh, it's delicious. Um, I used to be an IPA guy through and through. I still love IPA. I, I love all styles. Like I, uh, I just love a really good quality beer. Um, when I travel, I, I really enjoy trying whatever's local or whatever I can get my hands on uh, within style. Um, I don't get real crazy with all the fads, the sours, and the milkshake, fruity. Like, I, I, that's not me. I'm more traditional. Um, there was a beer originally that got me really started in craft beer. Uh, it was made by a company called Stouts in, uh, I think it was Pennsylvania. Uh, it was called Smooth Hopperator. Uh, it had a camel on the front. I don't know why. That, I just remember that. Uh, but I love that beer. It was a, it was a hoppy Bach, ironically. Um, and I've since always wanted to make one of those. Uh, I haven't. We did make a small Bach, uh, which we do have on tap uh, occasionally. Um, and I, I love making that beer. It's a really good one. Uh, but anyway, Smooth Hopperator has always stuck in my head as one of the beers that sort of propelled me into the craft beer market as far as something I've loved. Uh, as far as here, I literally am a seasonal drinker, but uh, somebody asked me yesterday, actually, out of Traveler, um, and he asked me what was my favorite beer to make, and I thought that was an interesting question because uh, it changes the game. Um, me personally, um, and today happened to be one of those. Um, I made a beer today that's normally on our tap list, the not so bad. Um, it's a more challenging beer to make. I think I am enjoying more brew brewing a challenging beer. Uh, we make all of our staple beers, obviously, and you can just get in a groove and you can just make them. And they're very, very good. I love to drink them. And, and again, I'll go through our tap list and drink different things, but as far as making a beer, the challenging ones are, are, are a lot of fun because it makes you stop, think you know, outside the box of what you're normally supposed to do and make sure you get things right the first time because uh, one little mistake can, can, can ruin the beer. So, uh, But yeah, I would say Smooth Operator uh, from Stouts here, it's random uh, brewing, it's, it's whatever is most difficult, yeah. I'm a stout person myself, and so I had the, the Highlander coffee stout, and, and I have not had a good one in two years uh, because of whatever what, what else has been going on in the world. But, but no, anything that's coffee flavored, particularly stouts, is my top choice. Um, I would say like one of my favorite things about the, the local breweries is how they're taking on the names of just Wheeling history of, uh, of the old Wheeling brewery. So I think that that's really cool. And this is the Topper, what is it called? Gold. Yeah, Topper Gold. And I don't know why I picked it because Schmulbach always advertised Golden Brew. And I saw gold and I just kind of went with it. It's but because so, you're an alumni of West Lip, so am yeah, I. So that and was so am I, I right? This has got to be good, good karma here. Um, but yeah, I'll try just about anything just because I like kind of experiencing what they would have back then. Mm -hmm. I just think that that's really cool. And that, uh, yeah, like we have local breweries in Wheeling like Brewkeepers and they're keeping this tradition alive. And the, the think about it, like when I started getting into this and again, I was like, why would anyone else care about this? That's about the time a few years later that, you know, people started paying attention to craft breweries and that started to come up. So I just kind of think it's cool to be a part of, of all of this. So Any similar to brew, Ryan, come on down. All right. I'll take you up on that. <laughs> Fantastic. Cool. Well, it was great getting to be back in this location. Uh, we, we, uh, we did one of the interviews. We literally were sitting over here and I believe, and it was it was by far one of the more the most illuminating discussions I had. Learning about the process and learning what we've all been doing. Yeah, no, no, thank you, thank you for everybody for coming out. I know we all appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. We were still recording. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, so, uh, on behalf of Brewkeepers, uh, my wife, who is in the audience today, uh, and myself, who are the owners, uh, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Hal, for an amazing job. Thank you to Wheeling Heritage for propelling this whole project. Um, 
I love the podcast and, and uh, I encourage people to listen to it. Uh, it's amazing. And, and everybody's done a great job with this whole project, uh, even with the reboot and leading up to today. So thank you everybody for coming. And again, thank you Ryan and Hal for, for, for doing you. a wonderful job with this podcast and, and the team behind the scenes uh, doing all the, uh, the audio and stuff. So <laughs> thank you so much for, uh, for everything. So. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate Thank it. You.